0: While our political liberties are indeed a great blessing, they do not even compare to the spiritual liberties that we can experience through Jesus Christ. Listen, please, as I read to you an account of the liberating power of Christ in one individual's life. This is from the Gospels, first of all, Luke 8. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he, Jesus, went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. Then Mark picks up this account and tells us, And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And Jesus said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Now here is a man that is possessed. In this case, literally possessed by demons. In other words, someone other than himself is in control of the things that he says, is in control of the very actions in which he participates. In short... This man is in total bondage to attitudes and to actions that are not only physically harming his body, but more importantly, are spiritually damning his soul soul and body to hell. Now my question for you this evening, and if you don't take anything else away tonight from this service except for the answer to this question, make sure you take it. And that question is, who possesses you? Probably not demons. But what are the motivating factors in your life, the things that cause you to say the things that you say and to act the way that you act? If Jesus Christ is not the one who is in possession of you, unbeliever, And I'm assuming I'm talking primarily to believers tonight, but it's possible in an audience this size for there to be one or more who have not personally accepted Jesus as their Savior. And if that's the case, then your soul and your body are also destined to spend an eternity in the flames of hell. Revelation 20.15 tells us that whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But if that is your condition tonight, take hope. Because in Jesus Christ there is eternal liberty. Romans 10.13 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And Romans, excuse me, that was 1 John 1.9. And Romans 10.13 tells us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then, Christian, fellow believer, my question for you is very similar. And that is, what possesses you? Praise the Lord, your soul has been redeemed. But is there something in your life that is hindering your walk with God? Is there some sin that keeps dragging you down? Is there some sin from your past that you think is so horrible, so horrendous that no one, not even God, can or would forgive you for such a sin. Well, if that is the case with you, take hope. Because in Jesus Christ, there is temporal liberty. 1 John 1.9 applies to us as well. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. That means He'll do it every single time that we ask Him. And he is just to forgive us our sins. That means he has the right to do it because his son came to earth as a man, took the sins of the entire world upon himself, and died in our place so that we would not have to spend an eternity in hell in separation from God. So the bottom line is, folks, whether you're lost and in bondage to Satan or whether you're saved and in bondage to some sin, the only key that can liberate you from your chains is Christ Jesus the Lord. Now let's go back to this account that we began with. Christ has just liberated this demon-possessed man from his possessors. And now the townspeople have gathered around to see if Christ really can make a difference. And the scripture tells us and they came to Jesus and saw him that was possessed with the devil sitting and clothed and in his right mind.
1: Come ye sinners poor and needy weak and wounded sick and sore Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Ten thousand charms come, ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty, glorify true belief and true repentance every grace that brings you nigh. Come here.
0: wonderful account of the liberating power of Christ occurs in the fifth chapter of John's gospel. He tells us that a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that condition, he saith unto him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately this man was made whole And he took up his bed and he walked. Now, while all of us can imagine the joy that was flooding this man's soul when he took up his bed and for the first time in 38 years walked, only those who have experienced a prolonged illness can truly understand the joy that this man was experiencing. And undoubtedly, those who do suffer from a prolonged illness oftentimes call out for their own rise-up-and-walk miracle. But you know, dear folks, God doesn't always choose to display His power in a physical fashion. Many times, He chooses to display His power in the spiritual realm. My wife is going to come, and she's going to share her testimony and explain how it's possible to find true liberty even in the midst of physical pain and suffering.
2: This coming July 13th, Jeremy and I will celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. We're very thankful for the past 10 years that God has given us together, but they have been some of the most difficult years of our lives. When my husband married me, he knew he was getting a sick girl. I had started having health problems about three years before our wedding, but I was seeing improvements, and we all thought I was on the road to wellness. However, the Lord had other plans. Shortly after we were married, my health began to decline very severely and very rapidly, and I became completely bedridden within that first year of marriage. I was severely bedridden for about two and a half years, and then semi-bedridden for another year after that. I was completely debilitated and that I could not take care of myself. I couldn't perform any of the simple tasks we take for granted every day, like brushing your own hair or even brushing your own teeth. Focusing was so exhausting for me that I couldn't look around the room for very long. I couldn't read or write or even listen to music or even talk for more than a few minutes at a time. Yes, it was an extremely difficult time for both of us, But it was during this time that the Lord did teach us many, many lessons that you can learn no other way. And for me, one of those was how to find liberty in the midst of our afflictions. Obviously, by God's wondrous grace, he is freeing me from my afflictions. I'm not quite 100%. I'm about 97%. This affliction with the crutches has nothing to do with the other affliction. This current affliction is just because I could walk. Um, I fell down a flight of steps last November, and I severed a ligament in my ankle. And it's just very slow healing because of nerve damage. And so I'm thankful even though I'm, I, I'm on crutches, but I'm still walking. And that is because about seven and a half years ago, the Lord allowed us to find the whole root of my health problem was my jaw. I had had a jaw surgery before my senior year of high school, and I was normal before the surgery as far as normal goes. I was not sickly. I did not have health problems other than I had headaches caused by TMJ because of a bite misalignment. So they said, we'll fix you up. We'll do surgery. You'll be good to go for the rest of your life. But about nine months after the surgery, I began experiencing severe digestion problems. I had a gallbladder attack on my 18th birthday, and it just went downhill from there. So over the next five years, we searched and searched until the Lord allowed us to find a dentist in Illinois who knew what was happening and knew how to fix it, which is always the plus. Um, So it's it's not very easy to explain, but uh, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Everything works together. And everything that goes from here to the rest of your body has to go through here and through your neck and all this area. So it's much more important than we give it credit. Uh, Specifically, your jaw stimulates the pituitary gland, which is a master gland. It sits just above your palate, straight through there. That gland feeds uh, various uh, vital glands, uh, specifically your thyroid and adrenals, which are pretty much your go pedal, and because my jaw, after the surgery, because of improper molar vertical support, they corrected everything horizontally, but didn't worry about the vertical at all, uh, my jaw slid out of alignment after the surgery, and no one noticed, and it just began short-circuiting the pituitary, because the pituitary needs the proper function motion of the jaw so uh, to put it very simply that's it so all i know is i started coming back to life as they started realigning my jaw through uh, buildups and retainers and braces and i am thankful i can walk and i can talk if you give me a chance i can talk your leg off Um, because i'm making up for lost time and i can sing and i can laugh and i just praise the lord for that but i am very thankful for the lessons And one of those deep lessons came just after we found the root of my problem. Here we would found answers, and I was seeing improvements, but they were coming extremely slow. Uh, It was pretty much like one step forward, half step back. Then two steps forward, one step back. Because I was so debilitated, it took a long time. Healing comes from the inside out. And the more you get, the more you want, and the faster you want it. And I started tasting wellness, and I couldn't imagine being bedridden any longer. And I began pleading, begging, and I would have to say demanding that God heal me, and that he heal me now. I was praying for a rise-up-and-walk miracle, and mine wasn't really happening as fast as I wanted. And there's nothing wrong with asking. I believe it's we have the full right to come boldly before his throne and ask. But there is a problem with demanding. And I, but God is so gracious because I began to feel my heart sinking at that time. And the Lord allowed me to talk with a very wise and godly lady who helped me see that my focus had become more and more on my own healing and less on what God was doing in my life. I needed to focus again on who He was and who I was in Him. I needed to remember that as his child, I was in the center of his plan for my life at that time. And that meant being bedridden at that time. And I could allow his grace to sustain and heal me as he chose by surrendering to his will. She reminded me of a truth that we often forget as we get busy doing. And that is the truth that God does not delight in us because of what we do, but because of who we are. If we are his child and we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, we are his delight. And no afflictions and no limitations of any kind can change that. And this truly restored the joy of my salvation. I had a smile on my face that you couldn't wipe away because my joy was restored. And true liberty does not lie in the removal of our afflictions, for it lies in our heart's surrender to his will. I don't know what affliction some of you might be facing or what you might face in the future, but maybe your heart needs this gentle reminder as mine did. Whether God gives grace by removing those afflictions or whether he gives grace to endure them, we must allow that wonderful and truly all-sufficient grace to work in and through us by surrendering to him. In this, we do find true freedom and true joy, and he is glorified. (laughs) you. <laughs>
3: give it a... Mm-hmm. Every-
0: Almost done. One more song and then each of us will go our separate ways this evening. We've seen through the example of the demon-possessed man of the Gadarenes that Christ provides liberty from the chains in which Satan would see us eternally bound. We've heard through my wife's testimony that Christ provides liberty from the despair that a prolonged illness or really any lengthy trial can engender. We close this evening... With a truly astounding illustration of the way that Christ can provide one liberty from one's own past, no matter how sordid or how polluted that past may be. And the reason we close with this is perhaps is because perhaps one of the most common excuses for the unwillingness to give up an ungodly lifestyle, or the unwillingness to live a dedicated Christian life, is the, well, you just don't know my background. If you did, you'd understand why I can't. And you can fill in the blank. But you know, when you hear a testimony like the one you're about to hear, you begin to understand why the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, Is not my word like as a fire? And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Now, for now, I'm simply going to refer to this person as Johnny. Some of you might guess of whom I'm speaking as I share his testimony with you, but at the end, I'll tell you who this person is, why he is remembered, and I guarantee you every single person in this room will know of whom I've been speaking. Johnny was born in 1725, that's seven years before George Washington was born. His mother was a deeply pious woman who taught her son the scriptures, and by age four, Johnny was learning to read the Bible, memorizing his catechism. But at age seven, Johnny's mother dies, and he's left basically to himself. At age 11, do we have any 11-year-olds in here? Raise your hand if you're 11. All right, here's two young ladies right back here. Parents, folks, imagine this happening to these young people at their age. At age 11, Johnny is put to sea as an apprentice sailor, and he becomes a reprobate. In his own words, he says, I believe for some years I never was an hour in any company without attempting to corrupt them. Here is this. 11, 12, 13-year-old boy having a corruptive influence on all of these seasoned sailors around him. Not a pretty picture, but it gets worse. At the end of a five-year voyage, Johnny's put in charge of a boat going ashore with instructions to see that no, none of the crew deserts. Well, Johnny deserts He's captured two days later, stripped and flogged as a deserter, put into irons, and transferred to a slave ship, the lowest-ranking ship in the maritime world. And Johnny says, from this time, I was exceedingly vile. By age 19, Johnny is a militant atheist living a debauched life aboard his slave ship. At age 20, he leaves his slave ship to work for a slave trader named Clow. Now, Clow has this common-law African wife who absolutely abhors Johnny with her entire being. And while Johnny's working for them, he falls desperately ill, so ill that he can't take care of himself. And Clow's wife takes this opportunity to deny him food and water and even to have her own black slaves physically torment him. So Johnny lives, but he lives in virtual bondage for over a year. At age 22, he's rescued through, as he later would put it, a series of divine interventions, and he boards a ship to return to England. Now, the date is March 9, 1748, and this is a turning point in Johnny's life, although he does not yet know it. You see, Johnny had begun reading a book called The Imitation of Christ by a man named Thomas a Kempis, And in the section entitled Judgment and Punishment of Sin, he reads, In all things consider the end, how you shall stand before the strict Judge, capital J, from whom nothing is hidden. And who will pronounce judgment in all justice, accepting neither bribes nor excuses? And you, miserable and wretched sinner who fear even the countenance of an angry man, what answer will you make to a God who knows all your sin? And of course, Johnny, living the life he has lived is greatly disturbed by this message. And he flings the book aside, determined to never again have anything to do with such rubbish. Well, early the next morning, their ship is struck by a raging storm. And it is so fierce that one of the veteran sailors on deck next to Johnny cries out, Pumping's useless. Nothing can save this ship or us. But Johnny and the others did pump from 5 a.m. until noon. They pumped for all they were worth, at which point Johnny cries out in exhausted desperation, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy. And the Lord hears his cry, and he has mercy. Their ship limps into Liverpool, England. And Johnny says, from this point, I began to know there is a God that hears and answers prayer. Though I can see no reason why the Lord singled me out for his mercy. Johnny is gloriously saved at age 23. And he begins to grow in grace. Now jump forward to 1764. John is now 39 years of age. He is ordained and he begins to serve as the pastor of a local church. Talk about the liberating power of Christ from the decks of a slave ship to the pulpit of a church. Now flash forward to 1805. John is now 80 years of age, still faithfully preaching the word, despite the fact that his eyesight is beginning to fail him. And as a result of that, several of his close friends are recommending that he stop preaching. To which John replies, What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? And Towards the end of his life, John becomes so feeble... That it's necessary for an assistant to help him up into his pulpit each Sunday. And this, by the way, is a picture of the very pulpit that he preached from. And sometimes it's even necessary for his assistant to help him read his manuscript sermon. And one Sunday morning, John had twice read the words, Jesus Christ is precious. At which point his helper leans over and whispers in his ear and says, You've already said that twice. Go on. And John stops and he turns and he looks at him and he says, Young man, I said that twice and I am going to say it again. And the rafters rang as this old preacher shouted, Jesus Christ is precious. John lives for two more years. And oftentimes he tells his friends, my memory is nearly gone but i remember two things i am a great sinner but he is a great savior and shortly before he dies john writes his own epitaph john newton Clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. John Newton, does that name ring a bell with you? My wife's going to come and join me and together we're going to sing for you the song that this man is remembered for above all of the other songs that he wrote. And that is, of course, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like John Newton.
4: Grace my feet.